From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrin. Thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' basement, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Hello to everyone tuning in on one of our affiliate stations across North America. Howdy to those who listen via the Conspiracy Show app. However, and wherever you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes and I thank you for your fine company. Cal Cooper, parapsychologist and the author of Telephone Calls from the Dead is here. And uh, he is the co-editor of Paracoustics, Sound and the Paranormal, co-author of Conversations with Ghosts, and author of Telephone Calls from the Dead, a lecture in psychology at the University of Northampton in the UK. Uh, all right, so uh, I'm going to share my uh, my telephone call. There's some details here, and I, I, I include them. I think they're important. Okay. So I uh, was my late partner in uh, in radio, uh R. Gary Patterson. He was a rock and roll historian and a musician from uh, Tennessee. And we knew each other over the airwaves for many years before we actually met in person at a couple of live events. And at, at some point, we decided we wanted to work together on our own project. And so we began um, working together on a proposal for a radio program that would uh, sort of combine the fields of the paranormal and rock and roll legends and history. And, and it's, it's just a rich vein to be mined, of course, unexplained deaths and, and, uh, ghost sightings. And you've got the, uh, the, the, the legend of the crossroads with Robert Johnson on and on and on. So we, um, our, our relationship, our working relationship really intensified and we started talking on the phone or Skype, texting and emailing several times a week. As we put this proposal together, and uh, finally we uh, we completed a demo. We sent it off to a bunch of radio stations, and in uh, the spring of 2016, um, we got really, really close to landing a radio program, uh, a radio station. My, my apologies, it was 2017, uh, and. On a Wednesday in May of 2017, Gary called me and uh, said, okay, the meeting is for next Monday with the management at a station in Knoxville, Tennessee. That was fine. And then on the Friday following that call, I was sure I got another call from Gary Patterson. I'm sure it was on the Friday. Mm-hmm. And it was a fairly lengthy conversation. And uh, Gary said to me, the, the, the real purpose of the call was to tell me, he said, I, I plumb forgot, he said in his southern drawl, I, 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 I forgot that Monday is Memorial Day here in the United States. So there will be no meeting uh, because everything's closed. And I can't remember for the life of me if I followed that up with, well, is it being rescheduled? I, I, I can't remember. However... That was the gist of the call. He called to tell me there's no meeting. It's been put off. And then we just got to talking about other things. And he said a couple of things that in retrospect seemed kind of strange. One of them was, uh, he said, Richard, you're a really cool dad. And I, I don't know where that came from or why he said it. I just took it as a compliment and I, because I talked a lot about my kids and he talked about his children and I, I thanked him for that. And then he said, 
Richard, you know what? You and I are a, are a really big deal. And I thought at the time, okay, this is Gary's way of building us up. We're trying to get psyched up for this, for this meeting with this radio station in, in Knoxville, Tennessee. And then before the phone call ended, I said to him, because when I think of Memorial Day in the United States, I think of barbecues. Everybody in the United States, they have a, they get the family together, they have a barbecue. I said, Gary, are you having a barbecue on Memorial Day? And for the first time in all the years that I knew Gary, he got kind of curt with me. And he said, there will be no barbecue, just in a very matter-of-fact way. Hmm. And I thought, oh boy, did I just, you know, step yeah. step on a landmine here. And I didn't want to pursue it. And as best as, as I can recall, that's pretty much how the phone call ended. I figured, okay, I'll, I don't know, we'll, we'll talk again and he'll tell me what that was all about. That was a Friday night. Now, a couple of other details that are important. I know this is a long story, but it was, um, it was May and it was dark out. Now, that tells me that it was probably after eight o'clock because the sun stays up, you know, in May. We're getting to seven, eight o'clock before the sun goes down. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it was dark out. I remember that. And uh, the other thing was I have a, phone, a habit of wandering the house when I'm on my cell phone and I'm talking. I just wander from one room to the next. No general idea of why I'm in one room. I'll just find, I'll suddenly find myself sitting in the living room. Then I'll get up and I'll walk. And uh, my wife later remembered me walking through the kitchen with my phone to uh, the, my phone to my ear with a, what she described as kind of a far off look. And uh, so that's another important detail. So Friday night I go to bed and normally I'm listening to Coast to Coast AM, uh, which is a, a very popular late night radio program. Yeah. Uh, I, I guest host. Uh, on occasion, and and I usually stay up and listen, but on this night I didn't. I fell I fell right asleep. Now, had I been listening, I would have heard the news. I didn't. I woke up Saturday morning, went out to the uh, veranda. This was my morning ritual: make myself a cup of coffee, sit down on the front porch, go through my emails, my Facebook messages, and there, on my Facebook message is. Uh, a message from my colleague at Coast to Coast, Dave Schrader, who had hosted the show mm. that night. He said, Richard, I thought you'd like to know, in case you missed the show, Gary passed away last night. And my first instinct, uh, I just Facebooked, messaged him back and saying, well, that's absolutely ridiculous. I just talked to him. And then I immediately called Gary on his cell phone. Of course, I didn't raise him. I left a message on his uh, voicemail, Gary. They're telling me at coast to coast that you're dead. Ha ha ha. What's this all about? Give me a call back. Well, mm-hmm. it, was, it was all true. And, uh, Gary had died at about six o'clock suddenly. And, um, so I, I, I quickly organized a flight down to Knoxville. I went down to the funeral and, uh, I walk into the funeral home and Gary's brother Michael is standing in front of the, the open casket. I'd never met him. I went up, I expressed my condolences, I didn't tell him about the phone call, I didn't think it was appropriate, but I, I, I said to him, Michael, i got to ask you, one of the last things Gary and I talked about was whether or not he was going to have a barbecue on Memorial Day. And he, I said, i got to be honest, he got kind of cross with me, and he just said, he just kind of blurted out in a kind of a curt way, there will be no barbecue. 
I said, do you have any idea what that was all about? And Michael looked mm. at me and he, in a very puzzled way, he said, he said that to you? And I said, yeah. He said, well, that's funny. He said, because the day he died, he was racing around all afternoon looking for a barbecue. He spent $500 on a brand new barbecue and spent the rest of the day putting it together on his back porch. <laughs> so mm. I raced upstairs uh, that Saturday morning and uh, to tell my wife that Gary had just died. And she said, without me prompting her, you just talked to him last night. And I checked my uh, the recent uh, phone call on my cell phone. I had no incoming calls on Friday. I had no outgoing calls on Friday. I talked to no one, according to my according to my phone. So mm. that's a very long story, but yeah. uh, I thought it was important to get all the details in there. No, it's a fascinating one. It relates so well to, as you heard, the type 2 call, the prolonged call, and you get all these kind of finality messages so that there will be no barbecue kind of fits in there. You, you don't quite know what the meeting is until afterwards when you speak to other people that know the person. Um, Rogo and Bayless mentioned that with people talking about uh, projects stopping and you carry it on and, and then people thinking, what did that actually mean? And they had to actually reflect back on the call. Um, still sometimes not knowing that person was dead but they, they finished the call and thought oh, they said something a bit out of character there that was a bit strange as you did where you said why was he so so rash why was he kind of so so sure of himself and you know i'd have touched a nerve there i'd have stepped on a landmine what what happened you had to have a bit of a think about that um but that also seems to typically happen with the the mobile phone um phenomenon when people say they've had a strange experience they look back for the the information and it doesn't appear to be there um, that's also happened with the text messages as well, or after a certain time, it seems to self-erase. The only way you could take that further is to actually call up the telephone company and, and actually get um, a list of your um, incoming and uh, outgoing calls to actually see what happened. Was your was your wife um, aware that, you know, were, were you in the room with anyone when you actually had the call from him, or did you just immediately tell people you'd just spoken to him? No, I. Um, what happened was, because my wife at the time was sitting in the kitchen with my brother-in-law and she watched me walk through the kitchen and she said to me uh, um, afterwards, she said, I, I wondered who you were talking to uh. and but I assumed it was Gary because I'm, I'm someone, I don't, I don't spend a lot of time talking on the phone um, unless someone calls me if I don't recognize the number, I just let it go through. I'm terrible this way. But I, yeah. she just assumed that it was Gary. Uh, but yeah. she, um, so, yeah, she was, she witnessed me on the phone with someone. And, but my, my first instinct after this went down was, I'm just misremembering this. He, he couldn't have called me. Uh, but then I had no call from him on the Thursday either. So I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Your only kind of thing there that's, um, this, the final piece to the puzzle is, is the actual remembering of um, between you and also uh, your wife at the time that she says she saw you. What was the actual time? Is it literally just before it happened or are we actually saying, you know, the unique the situation here? You know, is it just after and, and you had no idea about it? That's the only thing is is remembrance of the time. And, and that's the difference between it being perfectly natural and a very unusual final call um, through to it being a very unusual anomalous call because it was clearly after he was dead and you could verify the time and there's the time at which he actually died as well. Right. My um, only that, clue that, is... That, that's the hinge. Yeah. My only clue was that the sun was definitely down. I remember that. 
Uh, and I didn't learn about the time, the, the actual time of his death until I went down to the funeral and I asked his brother and he said it was uh, six o'clock. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical. I, uh, you know, these things don't happen to me. Mm-hmm. I talk about them on the, on the radio, but I'm, I'm not an intuit. I don't consider myself to be an intuitive person. Uh, and you know, I don't see UFOs, never saw one. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, I've had one other sort of semi paranormal experience, perhaps. But there are many prosaic explanations for that, possibly. But this one, I have to tell you, uh, continues to rattle me to this day. Yeah. It's a fascinating one. I mean, I'd love to be on this um, this radio chat to talk to you further about that case. It is really nicely fits into type two. It's a really good example. You know, even though we're left, as we are with all the other cases as well, all these kind of, it could have been this, it could have been that. But if we're taking it as people label it, it seems like an anomalous phone call. That's the category it seems to fit into. Right, right. Um, let's talk about the, the psychology of EVPs. Uh, are there, are there personality types that generally, uh, record EVPs? Have, have you been able to study that? Um, again, this is something more for, um, people like Anne Winsper because I, I'm aware of EVPs. I'm aware of some of the history in paracoustics. Um, I did quite an extensive, um, but I suppose also trying to be quite concise as well, chapter on, the history of EVP and, and what happened, but more so I documented the researchers and the controversies. Take it through to more modern stuff and what Anne's doing. She has been looking at um, personality types and, and other things like that and sheep goat effects. So sheep being people that are classified as paranormal believers once they filled in a scale about beliefs and goats being the skeptics um, as well. Uh, but we've we've noticed differences in general um, ESP studies as well. People that are classified as goats don't seem to do very well at ESP on the whole, and people that are sheep seem to do better. And that can even be broken down into gender. We have males seem to be typically more goats, and uh, females seem to be typically more sheep. But even though we're saying, well, maybe that's because, you know, we've got a difference here, the goat is actually trying to rationalize the experience whereas the the sheep are just accepting what comes to them. It doesn't make a lot of sense in the lab when it's saying that, well, sheep are typically doing better in an ESP study, even though there's there's no um, obvious way of cheating, all the controls have been sorted, and yet the the skeptic isn't doing so well, or uniquely sometimes they're doing so badly um, they're getting a significant result where they seem to be deflecting the target more than chance would expect. So they're not even chances. They're below chance. They're so dead against the idea that they seem to be, you know, producing what seems to be a psi effect, which is unique. But back to the EVPs, I think we could put that in the same category as well. You know, people that are believers of the paranormal are more likely to pick out words and phrases they can associate with um, for a question posed, whereas a skeptic listening will do exactly as I mentioned, where... Um, you know, that they're looking for the conventional explanation. They're just saying, well, that doesn't actually sound like anything, and I, I want to leave it there because if I think about it more, I'll add extra interpretation to it. Uh, they did studies like that with Hampton Court Palace, and they took groups of the public crowd, famous place where uh, Henry VIII once lived near to London, well, more or less in that area, and um, they sent people around, and they wanted to look at the psychology of how they judged different rooms, and the groups of skeptics jumped to a lot of conclusions, and the sorry, the believers, and the group of skeptics were trying to find conventional explanations for why they felt cold in one area or um, why they thought people had had experiences in another. 
Um, so we do know that different belief systems and then beyond that personality types and other things will lead to people creating different interpretations of an event. Hmm. Uh, I suppose one good, one good example, if I can quickly get it in. Yeah. There was, um, I think it was Arthur Ellison who was an electrical engineer. Um, he was involved in the original Skoll report, and that's a discussion for another time. But he, he was trying to tell a public audience about the difference between skeptics and believers and eyewitness testimony and how they take in different things. So he told them about the idea behind levitation and said, in, the, in a moment, on this table in front of me, I'm going to levitate this object. And afterwards, I want to raise a hand to who actually saw the object levitate. And he had separated the audience somewhat. And after he was done, and he said, right, there we go, the object's been levitating. How many people saw it levitate? And the paranormal believers, most of them, they, they put up their hands and said, yes, they did. The skeptics, on the whole, didn't really put up their hands at all, doubted that it did levitate. What was the truth of the story? Well, the object did, in fact, levitate. Why? Because he was an electrical engineer, rigged some magnets, and the object was levitating. He made it so on the flick of a switch. But some people were so ingrained in their belief system that even when they were told something was going to happen, because it went against how they believe different things, how they see the world, they even denied what was right in front of them because it just didn't fit their concepts, even though it was being done not by paranormal means, but by known conventional means. It was through magnets that it genuinely was levitating, but they refused to see that. Confirmation bias. Absolutely, yep. Who's more predisposed to confirmation bias, do you think, debunkers or believers? I think it happens on both sides of the coin, to be honest. Um, I've got uh, one of my dissertation students who's studying, um, and, and I found it quite interesting, being a sceptical activist, to look at this extremist view, which we would call uh, dogmatic sceptics or pseudo-sceptics, where they're so dead against the idea of uh, evidence for Psy and many other things that their comebacks are often ridiculous. They either don't support what they've got to say with evidence or it's knee-jerk reactions and insults. And that's just not how science operates. We wouldn't get anywhere if we wanted to talk about the latest drugs or cancer research if everyone was just name-calling all the time. But that's how they seem to respond to when people talk about having seen ghosts and various other things, regardless of the evidence behind it. And the same happens on the other side. You get people that are too willing to accept without questioning as well. And, and so they will be very much one-track mind and very knee-jerk in their reactions. Uh, in, in terms of uh, sort of a profile of, of people that have had paranormal experiences, tell me about, do you have in- interesting case studies involving professional people, particularly medical people, who have, who have experienced what could be described as something paranormal? Um, I suppose from my own background, I mean, I've focused on a, a number of things. I mean, my main area is bereavement care. Um, my original PhD was focusing a lot on thanatology and looking at bereavement care. Um, but then my work within parapsychology has been everything from Gansfeld, remote viewing, through to the spontaneous experiences such as hauntings, the telephone calls, um, and even most recently working with altered states of consciousness and the flotation tanks. Um, but so the, the professionals having different experiences that came up a lot when I was talking to the bereaved and some of the bereaved individuals that I spoke to were medical doctors. They were psychiatric nurses. They were end of life care specialists and spent many, many years working, um, healing the sick or looking after the dying. And yet they'd said remarkable things such as, uh, I remember one of the psychi- uh, sorry, end of life care nurses, saying that when she was one night on the nursing station, she'd heard one of the emergency buzzers go off for an individual she knew really well, so she went up to his room, and as she walked up to his room, she could see the door was open, and he was talking to someone at the end of the bed, but the end of the bed was just out of view um, because of the doorway, and when she got there, 
um, there was a guy stood at the end of the bed talking to him, looked to her, and then just disappeared. And that guy that disappeared, she knew to be the patient who was in the next room that had befriended this guy who was in the bed. And she said to the guy in the bed, did you just see him? Were you just chatting to him? And he said, yeah. And I think they spoke a bit about his conversation, but she walked in on the apparition and seen it. She'd also said that the nurses on the nursing station, where there'd be two, three, four of them at night time doing a night shift looking after the ward, it could be two, three in the morning, and they would have a nurse walk by, completely oblivious to them, and walk off down the corridor or then disappear, who was actually a nurse who used to work there but had died that they knew. And this just became something they accepted day to day. I asked why the medical doctors didn't talk about this more. And they said, look, they're doing routine things. They, they've made things so routine so they can function a smooth operational system. Um, everything works for them. So they're going from patient to patient. Look at, the, look at their results, diagnosis, medicate, move on, treat. But the nurses are getting more familiar. They're getting down to that emotional level. And she said, I just think nurses are more prone to it because we are kind of getting down to people's experiences and emotions, whereas the doctors are aware of it, but they just don't want to kind of get involved in it so much. But even then, I, I had um, people involved in my research that were medical doctors that just couldn't help but be fascinated by the fact that they'd encountered these kinds of things. Fascinating. All right, when we come back, we'll talk about communications with the dead through dreams. Dr. Cal Cooper, my guest, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Dr. Cal Cooper is my guest, and we are talking about, well, all sorts of different paranormal activity, telephone calls from the dead. He's a lecturer in psychology at the University of Northampton in the UK, uh, where he delivers classes and conducts research on death and bereavement and parapsychology. He is the co-editor of Paracoustic Sound and the Paranormal, co-author of Conversations with Ghosts, and author of Telephone Calls from the Dead. Now, my dreams are constantly populated by dead relatives. I'm at a certain age, and I, my parents were of a certain age, where most of my, if not all of my uh, my aunts and uncles are, you know, passed on many, many years ago. And they continually populate my dreams. What are your thoughts as a psychologist on dreaming of relatives that have passed on, or friends? They're extremely common. I mean, um, I can relate to it as well. I, I've frequently had dreams of... I suppose the one that crops up the most is my uh, maternal grandfather. And so I was really close to him, and he passed away just before I turned 10. And so a lot of the times when I have dreams about them, that they always seem to be like a conspiracy theory that he'd actually gone away and he hadn't died, but the family didn't want to tell me. Hmm. Um, so they're very strange. But the moment that I kind of get lucid, and I say to him that this can't be happening, you're, you're dead, this is very strange. And if he was alive now, you know, he'd be in his late 90s. The dream just stops. What fascinated uh, myself and also Dr. David Saunders, who's another parapsychologist in the department, he's also a dream specialist, we looked into these accounts and we thought sometimes there's interesting veridical information. Um, so one of the most famous cases within the, the Society for Psychical Research Files is um, the Chaffin and Chaffin case. Um, I'll, I'll come back. You've asked me um, what's the psychology behind this and what do I think. I, I think a number of things. If you've gone to sleep thinking about something, you will dream about it. And if a worry or something is on your mind, it will get incorporated somehow. And, um, you know, even if during the day unconsciously information's gone in, such as looking at a photograph 
fleetingly and you've not registered of that deceased person, that may get incorporated as well. There's so much we don't understand about dreams and why we really have them and, and, and what's creating them. Um, but this Chaffin and Chaffin case, this is a will case and there were, there were five sons and the father died and he left his entire estate to just one of the sons and it was one of the sons who was the most ill. So he believed they were going to die anyway, he wanted to give them the entire fortune and I guess the plan was that when he died it'd be distributed to all the other sons. Um, one of the other sons, um, I think two years later, had a dream that the, uh, 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 seemingly from what was read and said that the sons hadn't really got a major problem with this. There was no dispute, no arguments going on. I think everyone was living by, uh, living on quite comfortably. But one of the, the sons had a dream that was so distinct from his father saying, go to my old jacket and inside you will, you'll find something. I can't remember the exact wording. And so the son woke up, didn't know where this particular jacket was, but asked his mother, who lives some 30 miles away, something like that. And she said, well, I've still got the jacket. Um, or maybe one of his other brothers said, I'm, I'm kind of confusing all the original information <laughs> here, okay. but essentially, wherever the jacket was, it was in one of the family members' lofts. He, he went up into the loft, the attic, and uh, found the jacket. It got a bee's nest on it, so they had to clear the bee's nest away, and when they got the jacket, they could have a look inside, and sure enough, there was some extra material in there, so something had been sewn into the lining, and they um, unstitched it, had a look, and there was a note, not an additional will. It was it was told in the dream there would be an additional will. There wasn't one. The note said, though, go to my daddy's old Bible. So their grandfather, and they went to their grandfather's Bible that was kept by the father, the deceased father, look in Genesis, and they turned to Genesis, and sure enough, within there, within an envelope, was another will, outlining an equal distribution of all of the estate to all five of the sons um, signed by him. Um, and so it's been a remarkable case in the fact that th you've seemingly got veridical information because the dreamer had no idea about this information. They had to follow it up and essentially go on this treasure hunt to find it out. The only person who should have known is the deceased. Um, so this case has been questioned. I, I had an email from um, a random member of the public interested in my work, um, a journalist from, from Germany, um, it was interesting when he spoke about it because he was very sceptical. I talked about my work in scepticism. And it's interesting. He said, uh, oh, you know, that's a famous case that's been debunked. And I said, I'm, I'm sorry, we talk about this all the time um, at the university. You know, where are you saying it's been debunked or who, who has debunked it? And I think it was just hearsay. And it's terrible that because of the Internet and, and how the Internet chooses, people on the Internet choose to display this information, they'll say it's been debunked. I, I can categorically say it hasn't, but we are still working on ways in which we can find all these conventional explanations. So the latest paper was about four or five years ago by Robert Sharman, and he took the handwriting of both of the wills and the signature to handwriting specialists, and essentially they don't match. Uh -huh. um, so there were two arguments. One is that... Um, you know, it is fraudulent in the second case. Um, doesn't explain the full dream if we accept the truth of the dream, because if you say you dream about something, Richard, you know, you, I can only accept your word that you did dream that, and the same for if I tell you about my dream, it's a very subjective thing. Um, so we, if we're accepting that as true, the will itself seems a little bit dodging. But handwriting specialists also said that it's very common anyway that if you have someone's signature at age 20, it's going to look different at age 40 because our handwriting does actually change over time as well. 
Um, but there, were, there was more scepticism as to it doesn't appear to be done by the same person than it being an age signature. It seems in terms of aging, your signatures and your writing ages in a particular way. And the way signature one looks to signature two, signature two, signature two looks like it was done by a younger person than an older person. It should have come first. Ah, right. So, so, yeah, so that's the uh, more of the scepticism added to it. But certainly not an entirely debunked case. That There's loads of suspicions and certainly a lot of sceptical inquiry, um, but no one has thrown it out and said it's a complete nonsense case. It's still up there as one of the most fascinating ones with a, with a lot of investigation behind it. Indeed. Well, I, I'm all about the data and, the, and, and evidence. And I, as I say, I am generally a skeptic, but, you know, show me some some data and, yeah. and then we can talk about it. Uh, let me go back to the, the phone calls from, from the dead uh, and, and data. When you eliminate <laughs> pro, prosaic explanations and so forth, do you have or do we have... Um, Audio cassette recordings. I remember the old, uh, the old uh, answering machines that had the audio cassette, or even mm. di- digital recordings. Do we have uh, recordings from people who, who who believe that they've received a phone call from a dead relative? Oh, sure. I mean, all the original EVP stuff, the, the kind of better reports like Raymond Bayless was doing in the 1950s, those were all reel-to-reel recorders. Um, but later on, the cassette tapes you're talking about, and the mini ones as well. Um, that you had in the tape player. Yeah, people reported those. I have a few, um, I'm looking at it now on my top shelf. I've got three files up there of, uh, accounts that have been investigated and then filed away that, um, I need to work on again at some point soon. And within that, um, there were some cassette tapes that were sent to me that were copies of the answer phone messages. Um, they're not long though. I mean, I wish there were extended messages like someone would leave. Um, but the only one that I've got there that's just very distinct and it's an unusual sh- circumstance, um, very kind of um, sorrowful, is um, it was a mother who'd lost her daughter and she included a profile of her and a picture and the context. She'd split up from her husband some years before and um, I think their daughter had been out and about. She was only 21, 22 and she just had a spontaneous brain an- aneurysm and so that was it. She was dead. And um, I think a few days later, she'd realized that the answer phone was flashing, suggesting she got a message. And she was so shocked by what she'd heard, she called her ex-husband to come over and listen to it. And she copied it for me. And it's just um, her daughter saying on loop, you'd hear the beep, and then you can say your message. And then it's just, hi, dad. Hi, dad. Hi, dad. And so really interesting because they're adamant that's her voice. Um, so a number of things. It goes back to what I said about um, a child ringing a, um, a mother or father that's bereaved. You know, there's no specific names. They're just saying mum or dad. A lot of people are called mum and dad. And these people are bereaved individuals that seemingly would like a final goodbye because they'd lost her instantly. No chance to say goodbye. No prior warning. Um, another one is, you know, if we're questioning, is it... Anomalous? Is it going on in unusual circumstances? Is this beyond what we expect? Well, not necessarily. What if this was, I guess it's a mobile phone call. Sometimes when it's answer phone messages, um, they get lost in cyberspace. And you might end up picking it up after the person has actually died. I've had that before when um, I got a strange text message from someone um, saying, uh, it was an ex-partner of many, many years ago, saying, do you want to go to the cinema tonight and watch this? And it was a film that had been out some six or seven years prior at that time. And I texted them. I said, hi, haven't heard from you in ages. Why do you want to go and see that? That was out ages ago. <laughs> and they said, oh, God, I sent you that text message ages ago. Has it only just got to you? 
because that film had since been out on DVD and and so it, it was just a clear example that sometimes you might send a text and don't think the person's necessarily being rude if they say they haven't got it sometimes they do get lost and uh, it was just weird that for years that I've been kind of roaming around until my phone finally registered and said text messages has just come in and it's that so it can happen with the voicemails as well and it just so happens if it's in that interim of someone dying of course it will seem like you know someone has sent that from beyond the grave they were perfectly alive and well when they sent it it's just taken that time to actually get to you but we have to question the circumstances and the specific message that's said and so forth all right when we come back uh, i want to uh, dive into the flotation tanks with you for a moment because uh, you oh, mentioned uh, that that research and this is fascinating uh, cal cooper yeah. my guest we'll be right back Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Cal Cooper stays with us. The book, Telephone Calls from the Dead. I want to talk to you about some research you mentioned earlier uh, involving flotation tanks. These are uh, sort of isolation uh, tanks, right? Where you're floating in a, a saline solution, but it's completely dark. Am I right? That's right, yeah. Why were you researching flotation tanks? We've been doing Gansfeld for a long time in, in parapsychology, and that's derived from research that was being done on sensory deprivation in the late 1960s in psychology using a similar method, and then parapsychology adopted it by 1974, 1975. We've just used it over and over again, and as I mentioned earlier, I've been involved in it. I was just getting quite bored of, of seeing overall you know, statistically significant results. It sounds surprising that I'm saying that because you should be pleased a bit, but I was just displeased with how many times you know we have to keep doing that to try and please people we shouldn't be doing that that the results should speak for themselves but i thought well i'll take this in a different angle just to tease my interest a little bit so i've always had an affinity to water i find it very good for inducing an altered state of consciousness if you do actually like being in and around water and i thought well, why is no one actually used the flotation tanks they're kind of mentioned in a parapsychological sense in various films like The Mindbenders with Dirk Bogard in 1962, 63, and then you've got Altered States in 1980, and then there's been several films as well that have kind of pushed the idea since then. There were series such as the American series Fringe that used flotation tanks. There was the British series um, about a parapsychology department in Scotland called Sea of Souls, and they had used a flotation tank. So there were all these examples in fiction about people using the tanks for parapsychology, and yet when I looked at it, the truth was it had not really been done to anywhere near that extent. John Lilly, who pioneered the tanks, had spoken to the Parapsychological Association in New York City at one of their conferences in 1969 and said, look, the hallucinations you get are incredible. Why don't you put them to use in the ESP studies? You could use a tank-to-tank -tank thing and try and see if people could do mind-to-mind, -mind, you know, look at an image, see if you can send it to the other person. But no one seemed to follow it up. Everyone had various ideas that they wanted to, but it didn't really come about. Some people even went as far as buying flotation tanks, but then never using them for any formal studies that got published. D. Scott Rogo, though, who was involved in the telephone course from the dead research, he had done a pilot. There was a journal called Research Letter that was published by the University of Utrecht and came out around about the same time as the European Journal of Parapsychology. And he published a four-page 
pilot study on using three participants and four trials and obviously with that many trials you're not going to get any kind of statistical significance really anything you study parapsychological or not but he wanted to look at what information they came out with when they tried to guess the targets that were on a do you remember the old Viewmaster oh, slide yes. reels yes yeah that's what he was using they, they were all divvied up into different envelopes and then you'd pick an envelope and within that there was a set of four and then you pick one of those four envelopes and that would become the target and the other three were the decoy when it came to judging so what they gave in terms of feedback in the tank an independent judge would look at well which one of these rank order of four is the most likely outcome so you're never going to get anything statistically with that but they looked at what's the detail of what they're coming back with in relation to the photograph the 3d photograph nothing interesting he only had one participant who'd done gansfeld before so they were very talkative but what they said was just completely off and the other people had never been involved in gansfeld or meditation or certainly not the flotation tank so they said nothing for the entire trial because they were so fascinated with the idea of floating naked in the dark <laughs> you know it, it was just a very weird sensation so they didn't think to speak out loud about the hallucinations or just even what they were purely thinking about so we decided to do a, a further pilot study and we played more on the qualitative feedback we did 12 trials and we just out of interest kind of did a rank ordering thing you know it's not really going to reach anything but we just wanted to see how well would i as the investigator being the person in the tank judge my own mentations against an independent judge um so we have got differences and it is in favor of the judge more than me which we've seen in other gansfeld type studies um but we're interested in the feedback that we got as well and we're generally looking at the use of flotation tanks for health and well-being and altered states of consciousness so we will be getting some flotation tanks at the university soon and what about researching the idea of people who have encounters with or communications from the dead while undergoing sensory deprivation yeah you're thinking along the lines of things like psychomantium. And um, psychomantium yeah. is another lab-based study where you would fill a room with dimly lit conditions, but it's filled with mirrors. Again, you could take it back to ancient Egypt, where people claimed that they were staring in the dark into darkened pools of water. And I don't know if anyone's ever just tried this in a, a room that's pretty dark, but you can still see most things and gone up to a mirror and just stared at your own face. You struggle to actually track your own features of your face. They start to shift and it becomes quite creepy. Psychologists such as Sheriff was even looking at this many, many years ago and showing that people can't judge distance very well in the dark and their perception is just completely off. So your mind will start to fill in the gaps. But with the psychomantium, people are reporting remarkable things such as when they're in there and they're focusing on a person that they've recently lost, they will start to have a sense of presence feeling all the way through to seeing an apparition, sometimes being so powerful that they believe that they were able to reach out and touch them, hug them, even finally get that last goodbye that they needed to off their chest. All right, we'll take another quick time out, finish up with Dr. Cal Cooper. We'll talk a little bit about the Survival Research Committee when The Conspiracy Show continues. Stay with us. Peering into the shadows where the truth often hides. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Cal Cooper stays with us. The book Telephone Calls from the Dead. The Survival Research Committee, tell me about it. Um, so when the, the Society for Psychical Research first formed, they had various committees to kind of help with different tasks. So they would have a, a library committee as they built up their, their library that the members could actually use or even visiting public. Um, they had a haunted house committee, a statistics committee, and, and various other ones, and they've changed over time. So at the moment, we've got an education committee, there's a media one, there's a library-based one, there's a spontaneous case committee, and these are all the main council members 
splitting off and specifically um, kind of focusing on different things. So I sit on both the Spontaneous Case Committee and the Survival Research Committee. Um, I think um, Dr. Matthew Coburn, he recently went back through the history. So in the next issue of the Paranormal Review, which is their kind of academic, academic magazine that keeps you up to date of all the, the general things going on, um, it's not a peer-reviewed source, it's just an information source. I think he's done an article on the history of it. I, I think it got formed round about the late uh, late 90s, possibly, though I could be completely wrong, thanks to the late researcher Dr. David Fontana. And um, essentially, we, our chair is Marion Barton, and we've got various people that are on this, Dr. David Saunders, uh, Dr. Alan Gould, Dr. Matthew Coburn, Dennis Burry. Um, we had people on there like Guy Playfair, who was one of the lead investigators of the Enfield Poltergeist. And so loads of kind of big figures for parapsychology and psychical research have come and gone on this. And essentially what we do is we assess um, grants and research. We can give out um, funds for research, but it's all through an application process. There's an official application form, um, and then what are the grants required for, how much, and then what's the output of this as well, and what are the methods, what are the ethics behind what you're doing. It's a, it's a kind of reviewing process, really, and we just keep up to date on, on how much research is being done on survival, how credible does it seem to be, and where best to actually place the funds as well. And, and can you share uh, with us uh, a, a project that you funded recently that you're kind of excited about? Yeah, so we have numerous projects that um, come through. People think it's quite easy to kind of get this funding, and it really isn't. It's a long application uh, process, and we debated for quite some time. Um, but we had a really interesting one um, where we thought long and hard about the lengths because this lady had to do a lot of traveling. But she'd found some really interesting cases where people claimed that they'd been reincarnated and she wanted to go and follow them up. Some were children cases, some were through to adult cases. Um, but we, we hadn't had any of these um, in recent times um, that seemed worthy of actually following up. One of the biggest researchers for this was um, Ian Stevenson, who was a psychiatrist. And then more recently, you, you've had some great uh, books that have summarized some of the, the kind of lesser known accounts that have gone off into journals. So James Matlock, um, Dr. James Matlock and Professor Elenda Haraldson, um, they did a book recently called I Saw the Light and Came Here that summarizes both of their viewpoints and research. So essentially, that's it. I mean, it's been so long ago since we actually <laughs> uh, supported this project. It should be coming out soon. I'd have to go back through the, the emails now, but because it's, um, it's a registered charity and an educational organization, we've had to conform to all the recent um, data protection acts as well that have updated. So any of the previous emails that would remind me what those cases were about. They're gone now. We have to delete them. But soon these cases will be published and summarized by this lady. And she's done a hell of a lot of traveling. And um, some of that was to uh, get respite because I, th I think she was dealing with um, supervision of one of her children that's severely autistic. So she, she took a lot of time off to go and travel to get that time off to go and investigate these cases and I think her background was journalism as well and she'd had some involvement within social science at a postgraduate level. So for me, as, as one of the recent things we funded, these reincarnation cases seem to be really quite interesting. I, I find the most fascinating ones when children seem to speak in a language they've never been taught fluently or they demonstrate a skill they've never been taught as well uh, and speak quite accurately about lives previous lives that seem to be possible to follow up. They're, they're very, very interesting cases. Uh, in, in summing up, um, ufologists often talk about the, you know, those three or four cases out of a hundred uh, that, that can't be explained once you eliminate 
uh, swamp gas and, and misidentified aircraft and all other pro- weather phenomenon, all other prosaic explanations, they may be left with three cases out of a hundred. Where are you at in terms of, of, uh, parapsychology and, and trying to explain uh, or give prosaic explanations for these for these cases. What is? Can you affix a number? Is it three un, unexplained out of a hundred? Yeah, I, I would go by that. I mean, the the set of fifty cases I had when um, I was analysing the ones for telephone calls from the dead. I suppose there was just one that stuck in my mind that was just really fascinating, but it was so old it just wasn't possible to follow up the avenues of conventional explanations. But if it was what it was, it was fascinating. And for any spontaneous cases now, I, th- I think I'd agree with you that you will get that one, two, three, maybe out of a hundred that seem to be quite unique. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you've you've got the white crow. Um, it was proposed ages ago in psychical research, this idea of having your white crow, and you can't explain it away by anything else. It seems to be this unique anomaly. Um, but you've got um, Douglas Stokes, who's quite a um, a well-known skeptic within parapsychology he recently argued in the Australian Journal of Parapsychology about the idea that you can't really ever have a white crow because you can't explain away sometimes like the case I just mentioned it's too old to actually go down those avenues of conventional explanation so grey crows yes you, you could have that you have a middle ground where it seems to be a very good case for getting towards the possibility of, of white crows but because you're left with a question mark what if it's possibly that it could be this in loads and loads of cases, then you end up with this grey crow phenomenon, not white crow. So I'd agree with that, three out of a hundred. We know from people like Jessica Utz, the statistician who's been heavily involved in parapsychology and remote viewing, um, she even said that uh, ages ago, when we followed that principle, because it seems to be very much true, that one out of a hundred people seem to be naturally good at ESP tests. And this applied when they were using it in military techniques as well. And that seems to be the case, but use techniques such as the Gansfeld and flotation tanks and you seem to be able to improve your results. Is there part of you, I don't know if you can separate, you know, the the academic side of you from the other side, whatever that, whatever that other side might be, but <laughs> is there part of you that that hopes that, you know, we'll never be able to nail this down 100% because we just want to, we want to have some mystery in our life? Um, I appreciate that we do like mystery in our life and, and this is why we like things like magic and getting entertained by that and going to the theatre or seeing shows and, and various other things but this does not just apply to parapsychology and this is again why I hate the terms supernatural and paranormal I mean we don't say oh that this person has a particular form of skin cancer it's one that I like to refer to as paranormal skin cancer no it's just one you haven't cured yet and you don't understand why it's happening or how to actually cure it so we use the term anomalous it's occurring it definitely is there but we don't understand the processes involved and go to any other sciences you can go to medicine, physics, biology you name it and there are anomalous processes occurring that we don't understand Um, and so this is just psychology dealing with anomalous processes whereby people talk about apparitions whereby people talk of visions of the future we know the accounts we understand what they mean we've tested them in the lab but the middle ground bit the process isn't fully understood and so it doesn't bother me so much even if someone came out with a study that was a universal explanation for why we've got these anomalies why we're gaining statistical significance and it uh, you know it seems like sigh or why people have these experiences and it wipes them out it explains every single 
case doesn't bother me in the slightest because I, I don't have a vested interest either way. I don't have a belief in ESP. I don't have a belief in ghosts. Um, but I accept, as you said, data. I'm interested in data. And if the data right now is the current trend leaning towards something, then I'll be accepting of that, the data, until something says otherwise. Dr. Cal Cooper, leave us with a website. I will give you www.callumecooper.com. And you mentioned a few books, by the way. Uh, one that's coming out very soon is another one by Alex Tannis. Um, literally within a few weeks, so watch out on Amazon, that was previously unpublished. Um, it was finished in the 1980s. It's called Psy and Psychotherapy. Excellent. Cal, thank you for hanging out for two hours. I enjoyed it. My pleasure. Thanks so much for hanging on to me, Richard. <laughs> okay. Having faith. All right. My thanks to Owen Wolf and Ryan White. Again, a reminder, Don Jeffries will be sitting in for me next week. I shall return the following week with Forrest Moretti with a fascinating count of the world's most famous disease, polio, told as you've never heard it before. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. Do you have a dog? Would you like to develop your dog's hidden intelligence to eliminate bad behavior and create the obedient, well-behaved pet of your dreams? A woman named Adrienne Ferricelli, a professional certified dog trainer, has helped hundreds of dog owners train their dogs to be well-behaved, obedient, loving pets. Yes, good job. By bringing out the hidden intelligence inside the dogs. You can quickly eliminate any behavioral problem your dog has, no matter how badly you think it's ingrained, no matter what kind of dog you have, with the mental stimulation that Adrian teaches, your dog will listen to you and understand what you want it to do. Bad behaviors simply fade away as more desirable ones appear in their place. So if you want to check out this remarkable dog training system, just visit realbusinessbargains.com. That's realbusinessbargains.com. realbusinessbargains.com.